right, so welcome to City Light U. If you're new here, my name is Clay. I work with well, the college ministry here called City Light U. So uh, glad you guys could make it. Glad, thank you for parking down there with the construction. Uh, even if it is just you needed to get out of your dorm rooms because you've been snowed in for a while, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, to study the book of Hebrews with us tonight. So we kicked it off, Andrew kicked it off last week by preaching on the first four verses uh, and then assigned me this week to, to finish up the chapter and then the following chapter. So he gets four verses, preaches 45 minutes, and I get four, two chapters. Uh, and I'll, honestly, I probably won't go as long as him, you know me. So, uh, so if you uh, want to open your Bibles to the beginning of Hebrews, if you brought them, that's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, and while you do that, I'm going to set some things up. Um, what we know about the book of Hebrews that Andrew covered last time is that though it is a letter written to churches, it actually doesn't read like a letter, but even the, the author himself says that it's more of a sermon, right? This is meant to be read aloud in a church congregation uh, and to be almost like preached over them as a sermon. This is word of exhortation or word of encouragement encouragement, he calls it, to the Hebrews, to those uh, Jews who had begin, began to follow Jesus. So though by heritage and by culture they were Jews, they began to follow Jesus. And uh, in that time, at the time that this was written, following Jesus was not a popular thing for Jews to do. Okay, the one, the big claim over top of all the, the Jewish culture, the thing that they really ascribe to and held is, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so you can see the minute you start following a different person, as they saw it, the minute you start saying, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm worshiping Jesus now, you can see that there would be a rift in your Jewish heritage and the direction you want to go, and that's going to cause some division, that's going to have some repercussions. And so that's what this sermon is actually being preached into, is that dynamic. Because the, the Christians at that time are, are dealing with those repercussions and are experiencing isolation because of it. So if you, if you separate from your Jewish culture, and a lot of the culture at the time was centered around the religious beliefs of the town. And so uh, the synagogues, the place where they meet, became almost like the town center. Right? It was the hub of the community, and if you're no longer uh, one of the Jews going to synagogue, you are an outcast from that. You're no longer taking place in the Jewish rituals, and that has some uh, cultural separation from it. And then it, it would go to just as far sometimes that uh, they wouldn't even be allowed to trade in the marketplace. People wouldn't trade with you because they saw you as like a defector. Somebody that has left the Jewish faith, and so we're not, the Jewish faith. So we're not going to trade with you. We're not going to exchange goods. We're gonna, you are an outcast. And there was a lot of cultural rifts going on. And then on top of that, there was these social rifts as well. You can see if you have a family culture where they raise you as a good Jewish boy to be a good Jewish man, and you all of a sudden start worshiping Jesus, well, then you've, you've left our family culture. And there'd be a tear there. There's a, there's a tension, right? When, when you come, you're, you're a disgrace to the family. We no longer can talk about the same things. And then your friendships, you no longer have that in common. Like they, these Christians were feeling isolated and separated from everything kind of Jewish that was their entire background. And they're wondering at this time, 
man, is it, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Like the, the danger is like, oh, what is, is it really worth it to, to separate myself out? Can I just drift back in? Can I just kind of slide my way back in? Can I have one foot in this following Jesus camp and one foot in this uh, Jewish heritage and culture camp? Like where can I uh, compromise? Like is it really worth it to follow Jesus in this? And this is what this sermon is written into. Now you, you see how this kind of just translates directly over to a lot of our lives. So like none of you that I know of are Hebrews. Right? I don't know any of you born into a Jewish family with a Jewish heritage. Like, but at the same time, you all are a part of a city that, and, a, and a nation that has a particular culture that runs it. A particular worldview that it kind of operates by. And when you begin to say things like, I follow Jesus and I believe what the Bible says about X and Y, you begin to separate yourself out from culture. And it's not advantageous to do that, to do that. And Jesus actually says you will receive pushback if you do that. Like, and we, we see this outside these walls as we live in a culture that's increasingly hostile to those who follow Jesus. So it used to be in, in culture that becoming a Christian or saying you're a Christian would actually be, be able to leverage your way in this culture. Right? You are seen as more trustworthy, and then the person that's, that's not considering themselves a Christian, they, they were the untrustworthy one. So you could actually use being a Christian to your advantage in culture, but actually now it's not that way and is increasingly trending in the other direction. Right? We see this, that taking a stance about what the Bible says is truth, that it's not outdated, it's not irrelevant, is not going to win you favor in the eyes of the culture. It is seen as outdated, irrelevant, if not offensive and intolerant. So we can, we can see that. We can see where uh, following Jesus and leaving our family culture, the way your parents have raised you, can, can lead to some rifts. I know many of you have experienced this yourself, uh, and I have as well, like so when, you, when you're going to school to be an architectural engineer and you go to your family and say, you know what, I instead feel like God's calling me into ministry, that can go one of two ways depending on your family culture. But in mine, you're giving up what's important in order to do this silly little thing that seems nice, I guess. Right? And so I was mocked. I was ridiculed. Like it, they, they didn't understand it. Like, my family culture was about, you know, you work hard, and how hard you work is going to be directly proportional to how much money you make. And so, uh, I don't know what you know about pastoral salaries, but they're, like, they're not usually comparable to architectural engineers. Like, there's a bit off. And so, in their mind, I was giving something ludicrous up. Like, I was, it, that's ridiculous. And then, and then as you start to do other things, like raise money for missions trips with my siblings and I, like the, you are ridiculed just the same. Like why would you go waste that time, waste that energy, and you become like the black sheep? And so we're experiencing the same thing that they would have been as well. Or with friends. Have you ever had a friendship strain because of your faith? 
that I no longer delight in the things that I used to delight in. I no longer enjoy the things I used to enjoy. I don't laugh at the same things anymore. Like I, and, and then the, the, the insult comes out, which I love, which is, you've changed. And you're like, yeah, I have. Like that's, kind of, that's kind of the point I've been making this whole time, is I'm a different person. I don't delight in that anymore. And there's, and there's easily a time where that leads to a sense of isolation. And then the questions they're asking can become the same questions we're asking, right? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Do I have to take such a strong stance on Jesus' truth? Like, I know he says it, but can I, can I just kind of drift over this direction? Can I kind of ease back into the culture? Can I have my one foot in the culture and one foot following Jesus? Like, can I make that drift? Can I make that trade? And this is what the author responds to by lifting up Jesus, Right? He lifts Jesus up as primary. And so this is what Andrew kind of started. And I'm actually going to reread the last part of what he said because it's kind of an introduction to my text. And so we're going to start off halfway through verse 3. After making purification for sins, he, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this was not a direct correlation in my mind. Like I hear people drifting off into their old cultural heritage, and I don't think to start my sermon with, well, now remember, Jesus is better than angels, right? I didn't, I did, I didn't make that, that connection there. And so the question is, why is he comparing these two? He starts his sermon off with Jesus is better than the angels. And that makes no sense until we start to think about their culture. So the law, like the rules that which they used to relate to God, was given to them by angels, according to Deuteronomy. That the angels brought the, the law to Moses. And so when they think of angels, they hold them in high regard, thinking like these are the ones that bring the law. They bring uh, messages from God on how to relate to him. And so when they think of angels, they think, yes, angels come, and whenever they come, they bring what God says, and so we want angels to come. We need angels to tell us about God. And then he, the, the author juxtaposes, juxtaposes that with Jesus and says, but look at Jesus and how superior he is for them, and then gives seven Old Testament quotes to prove this, that Jesus' name that he inherited is bigger than theirs, and that name... Uh, as we'll see in a bit, that name is Son, that Jesus is called the Son of God. And so we're going to read through all of these uh, quotes, starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We see this name over and over. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And so you see this case he's building out, right? Jesus is the son. He's the firstborn, right? And for them, that didn't have as much to do with order of birth as it had to do with birthright. So we have examples of the second son or the tenth son being born, actually being the firstborn, because he has the rights to inherit what the Father has. 
So Jesus is the firstborn, and angels are ministers that worship him. Right? He keeps going. A couple more quotes. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he also says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This case that, that the author makes is that Jesus is the Son of God, firstborn over all creation, and rightful king over everything. And angels are a small portion of that. They minister to people and to God. They worship God. And they are just ministers within that system. And so if you think about this in terms of bringing the message, so his case here is, so angels come, and they bring a message from God. And they say, this is what God says. But Jesus comes as the Son of God, firstborn over all creation, and king over everything, and says, this is my decree. Angels bring a message of what God says. Jesus comes as God incarnate and brings another message. He's holding these two up so that as we look at them, he says, how much superior, how much more serious do we need to take the Son coming himself? Right? Jesus stepped in. We have this sort of in our culture in which, like, if I text somebody, you think, okay, I'll get to it. But if I call you, or maybe call you five times, you're more likely to answer because you get, he's serious. Right? There's a, a little bit of difference when the son comes in. Or when the dad says, don't make me come in there. Right? That means I want you to consider what I say with more weight. There's an increased significance to what I'm saying. Like the angels bring a message of thus says the Lord. Jesus comes in and says, I am the Lord. Jesus is far superior than the angels. Jesus is the son where they are, where they are ministers. And so if you want to do points in your outline, point one is Jesus rules and reigns. Angels may bring a message, but Jesus is the reigning king over all. And let me show you why he makes this point in the beginning of chapter two. We're covering a lot of text, but it's definitely going to be worth it. They say, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
distributed according to his will. He's saying, look at this. We've got to consider the weight of this. Angels bring a message of this is kind of how you relate to God. Jesus comes in and makes a way for us to relate to God. Jesus offers salvation. Jesus doesn't offer just good advice, a good message. He offers salvation to us. And therefore, it says, we must pay much closer attention. Do not, do not drift away from what you've heard. Right? He uses this illustration that I, I love. It's, like, it's of, a do, of, of a boat near a dock. Right? And the boat is meant to stay by the dock. It's meant to stay by the shore. And if, if you don't tie it up, if you don't anchor it properly... The boat doesn't have to try to sail away in its own direction, but instead can just let the drift kind of sail it and take it out to sea. So what the author is not worried about here, he's not worried about outright rejection of Jesus. He says, do not neglect such a great salvation. It's not reject, it's neglect it. He says, there's a danger here for us if we just have an apathy towards the things of God. And I've seen this over and over again in my experience in ministry come, come true. Like I have very few, and I can't really think of any examples of somebody that had this process of logic laid before them that all of a sudden they said, man, I'm out, you're right, this is, this is I'm it, this is done, I'm, I'm out. I guess Jesus isn't real and they're gone. What I've seen happen time and time again is that there's a slow drift in a believer's life to where they start taking things of God less seriously. They start enjoying the things of the world more and more. And before they know it, they are far from God. They have no intention of following him. But it was a steady drift, and then they found themselves far from God. The author here is saying, beware of the drift. Beware of neglecting such a great salvation. If the message that the angels brought has consequences, if they tell you how to relate to God properly, how to thrive in God's kingdom, and that there are, there's consequences, there are fallouts for not following them, how much more should we look at this great salvation we have in Jesus? How much more should we uphold the message that Jesus brings? So that sets up where he goes in chapter 2. Okay, so chapter 1 is is this big God, this, this, he, it focuses on the superior person of Jesus. And chapter 2 then turns and takes a turn and goes towards the superior salvation we have in Jesus. So we're going to start reading in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, which... I'm going to take a time out. I love that he can quote scripture like that. Like if a Bible author can do that, I can. It says somewhere that what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in, subje- everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
So the story that this text tells and the story of the Bible is that God created man to subdue creation, to rule over creation in a way that leads to flourishing and thriving. That man failed in that, that sin entered, and we no longer, we have, we have broken that chain, and we have lost what we were meant to rule over. And it has gotten out of hand, and in that mess, in that lack of subduing, Jesus steps in, takes the consequences for that on himself, and then is, is, it feels the way that is for a little while lower than the angels in terms of power. That he may then bring us out of that. That he may glorify us out of that. You see, I don't, this is good because what I don't need is good advice. Right? If I get good advice, I'm pretty good at taking in good advice. I'm pretty horrible at actually living it out. Right? Anybody else have that experience? Like, I, I can have good advice come in. For some reason, it just doesn't work its way out right in my life. And I think that's a, a pretty common experience because, like, what we have are, like, the fastest growing section in, in libraries and in bookstores is this self-help section, right? These, these books that just say, this is the way to fix things that are going wrong in your lives, but it's increasing at a, a, like a way faster rate than the rest of the store, right? Now, if, if they actually work, there could be just like four of them, and they'd say, this is how to help yourself. And everyone would read it and then fix the problem. The issue is I don't know of an experience of that happening. I've had some helpful books, but they never really fix what's broken at the core. They never fix everything outside that's broken. Right? I don't need good advice. I don't need self-help. I need somebody to enter in and grant me help. It's as if I'm like, let's say I'm driving in an ice storm, like a real ice storm, not this, sorry, excuse for one outside. Did anybody see ice? I didn't see ice at all, like none. So pretend there's a real ice storm outside, and I all of a sudden slip on the ice and end up in the ditch and can't get out, right? What I don't need at the time is a call from a physics professor to tell me how, why I slipped on the ice and how I could have avoided that. Right? I don't need that. I don't need somebody to speak in and say, this is how you could have avoided that. I don't need a mechanic to say, listen, this is, these are the parts you're going to need for your car. Right? That doesn't help me. I can't fix it even if it's, not, even if it's minor. I'm not going to be able to fix it. Like, let's face it. I don't need some advice. I need somebody that's going to enter in make my problem their problem, and pull me out. I don't need self-help. I don't need good advice. I need help from outside. And this is what Jesus offers in his humanity. So the Jews at the time had a hard time with that human, human aspect of Jesus. Doesn't that weaken him? And the author of Hebrew lifts it up and says, actually, this is what makes Jesus different than, than anything else we've got. Like all religions at the core is, these are a list of things you need to do to fix what's wrong. Right? This is the way you've got to act. These are the rituals you've got to keep. And even like the non-religious have these moral teachings lifted up. Right? We, they, everybody, even the culture admits like giving to charity is good. Tolerance is good. Right? The, our culture lifts it up. You don't even have to be religious, but they have this standard of this is what it looks like 
to be a good person. Or these are the things you need to put in place. You need to, to treat people this way. You need to recycle. You need to like, we have all these answers for how we're going to fix the brokenness of the world around us. We have an infinite number of messages, but only Jesus offers an outside God, a reigning king with authority over all creation that offers to step in, make our problem his own, to pay the penalty, to take the consequences on himself, enter into our struggle, give us access to the Father, give us the empowerment of the Spirit, promise one day to return to reign in full. Jesus offers what all these other faith systems don't. Now, if we go back to the the first argument, what we see is, once again, we don't need another moral teaching. We don't need a messenger bringing, this is what you need to do. We don't need an angel to step in. We don't need a cultural message. We need a God that steps into our mess and takes it on himself. That's willing to become, for a little while, lower than the angels, is what it says in order that he might lift us and glorify us, is what it says. And so what we have is a God that enters in. He steps into our mess and makes a way for us to relate to God properly. And so then we must throw out these these common teachings that there are like multiple ways to relate to God. Like we've got to throw those out. This just do whatever is best for you doesn't really work because there's an infinite number of moral teachings. And some of them are helpful, right? Some worldviews, people will be able to live with their entire life and never feel the need for something else. Like, it's possible. But but what I know is with an an infinite amount of time, and an infinite number of messengers with an infinite number of advice, an infinite amount of advice, I will not fix the problems within me, and I will not fix the problems outside of me. doesn't matter how much time, how many messengers, or how much good advice. I'm not going to be able to fix it. I need intervention. I need somebody to step in. And so this goes back to drifting, right? So he holds this up, and he's like, You've got Jesus. Don't drift back into these old messages. Don't drift back into these old ways of living. You've got Jesus that God in, God, like God over all, stepping into your mess. We don't need the message of angels. We've got the message of God, the gospel, the salvation of God. So if, if, you, if you have a point two, is that Jesus steps in. Jesus steps in. So Jesus is reigning and ruling. I wanted to just put Jesus rules, but it sounds like a weird bumper sticker. So Jesus reigns and rules, then Jesus steps in. And not only does he step in, but he identifies with us. This is just crazy. Look at, we're going to start up in verse 10, read some more. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is to say that Jesus perfectly carried out God's perfect plan in his suffering. 
For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and behold, I and the children God has given to me. Jesus, God, steps in and identifies with us. He calls us brother. He calls us sister. He's not afraid to identify with us, is what this text says. So, like, if if I'm straight, if I'm honest with you guys, I don't like identifying with me sometimes, right? I I don't like identifying with me. And if there's anybody that has the out to say, Dude, you got your own problems. I don't want to identify with you. It's Jesus. But Jesus steps in and identifies with me and calls me brother. Like, I have a hard time identifying with people that share my same weaknesses. Like, if we're all honest, we've got those people that we don't want to be lumped in the same category with them. I don't want to be identified by by them. I want want to keep my distance. All the while wondering... Who's going to identify with me? Am I going to have a spot at the cool kids' table? Right? Who's going to want to identify with me? We, we play this game. We feel this tension. And Jesus completely throws that game out the window when he says, I identify with you. I call you brother. I call you sister. So, like, I'm, I'm hyper aware of this right now, I feel like, because I just became aware of this, this kind of sin running in my life in the background. It's like this weird, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like conversational FOMO. I don't know if that's a thing, but, but so, so what I do is I'll get in a conversation with a person and I'm very aware that all of you are super cool people and I want to have a conversation, a deep, good conversation with all of you and I can't. And so what I end up doing is having some kind of like half-hearted conversations with some of you in which I look like I'm just constantly distracted by a squirrel, Right? So some of you may have experienced that, and for that I'm sorry, because, but what I'm doing in that moment is I'm constantly thinking, which conversation should I identify with? Where, where should I go to? Which, which conversation am I missing out on? Where should I? And what Jesus does, and what I need to learn from Jesus, is that Jesus isn't, doesn't have that with me. He's not looking for the best conversation. He's not looking for the best guy to associate with. Like Jesus associates with me. He associates with you. He's not looking for just the right guy to bring in and like, ooh, this will be a good one. Like, no, no, it's, he calls you brother. He calls you sister. He takes it on himself. He identifies with you. He goes through what you go through. And then to finish this passage and wrap it up, he not only, he not only steps in, he not only identifies with us, which would be your point three if you want one. Point three, but he sympathizes with us. We'll see this as we wrap up the text, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, 
For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see this progression here? He starts off talking about Jesus as God over all creation, firstborn over all creation, creator of the universe, son of God, steps into his creation, identifies with the worthless, and then sympathizes with their weakness. Jesus is not here giving judgment to you, but sympathizing with your weakness. So the text describes here is like big brother Jesus leading his siblings through life. Like an, like an older brother that's saying, listen, I've walked this route before you. I know the pitfalls, I know the dangers, and I navigated it perfectly. Let me tell you how to get through this. Let me walk with you through this difficulty. I've been there. I know what it's like to live in a fallen culture. And only Jesus knows how to navigate that with perfect holiness. Jesus offers there something no one else can. So when Jesus says this is, this is the way to live, he's, he knows for certain how to live with holiness in a broken world. Something that no one else here can do. No other messenger can say that. They're affected with the same sin we are. They have the same brokenness inside them and outside them that we do. But Jesus says, let me help you. Let me navigate with you. C.S. Lewis even talks about how Jesus, Jesus knows temptation even better than we do because he's the only one that saw it through to the end. Like every person here and any advice you get from a person is somebody that resisted temptation up until a point and then gave in. Jesus is the only one that resisted temptation past that to the point of his death on the cross. The only perfect man that, that knows what it's like to live holy and not fail. And he is, steps in to lead us in that life. And so the question becomes, the question he is bringing to us is why would you give up Jesus in order to drift into the cultural norms, to drift back into your spiritual background, to look for another message or another messenger when you have the God of the universe that enters in and is going to help you navigate, offers you salvation, and is going to bring you to the end of this. It's going to walk with you to the end. Do not give up Jesus. Do not neglect such a great salvation by drifting and being negligent. By just being inattentive. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He says, uh, pay much closer attention to what we heard in the gospel, to the salvation, the great salvation Jesus offers, that you do not drift away. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than any message they bring. Jesus is better than any culture that we might slip back into. Jesus is better than anything the culture has to offer. 
is the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one qualified to instruct us in it. And it's all the more glorious when we see that he stepped in. He didn't just give us advice from afar. He stepped in. And he didn't just step in to fix something and walk out, but he identifies with us. He takes his, our burden on himself and then walks with us step by step through our troubles. What we have in Jesus is not offered anywhere else. Do not neglect such a great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the instruction here. I see in my heart where, where I'm prone to wonder, I'm prone to just want to compromise and fall back. The areas of my life where I don't really want to give them up, I don't really want to submit them fully to you because I feel like I can just have my foot in both camps a little. But what you're offering, Jesus, is much greater than anything the world has to offer. Your salvation is much more glorious and much more important and carries so much more weight than any message I've heard anywhere else. Any other message that tells me I can find happiness here or joy here. So Lord, keep my eyes fixed on you. Fill me with wonder for what you've accomplished. And help me to rejoice in the fact that you're a God that that though you are creator of all, firstborn and heir over everything, that you humble yourself and take on flesh. You feel temptation. You feel the weight of this broken world. That you may identify with me. That you may identify with us. And help us walk step by step through that. Lord, to you be the glory forever and ever. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.